Hello, and welcome to episode 92 of the Medical Device Success Podcast and Videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host. As most of you know, I am also the host of the MedTech Leaders community. You can learn more about that at medtechleaders.net. Today's episode is about how one leader and his organization are working with musculoskeletal practices across the country to forge a win-win-win for practices, payers, and patients. The question is, how does MedTech be part of this win-win-win with providers, payers, and patients as hospital systems and practices move toward value-based care types of models? The challenge of crossing the chasm between fee-for-service and value-based care intrigued Will Barsoom, MD. He wanted to play a more significant role in finding solutions to this challenge. He started his career as an orthopedic surgeon, and with the guidance of legendary mentors that we will talk about in this episode, he became an operational leader at the Cleveland Clinic. He ultimately became the president and CEO of the Cleveland Clinic in Florida. He retired, and I have the word retired in quotes, a little bit sarcastically, from the Cleveland Clinic and became the president and chief transformation officer at Healthcare Outcomes Performance Company, also known as Hopco. We dig into Will's very interesting career, Hopco's three verticals, value-based care, how medtech companies can be part of that win-win-win we were talking about before, Stryker as an example of a company with the right culture in this environment, the question of who is medtech's real customer, and more. Here's a quick quote from Will regarding medtech and their customers. You may have your ideas on what's important to them, but it may not be what's actually important to your customer. So know your customer. There is a lot more of great guidance where that came from. If you think someone else may benefit from hearing this podcast, simply use the share link on your podcast player. In the show notes, I will have links to Will's LinkedIn profile and Hopco's website. I will also list many of the key influencers that Will mentions in our conversation. I should also mention that Will is a podcaster His podcast is called Transforming Healthcare. I have listened to one of his podcasts, episode 13, and it was great. Let's meet up with Will and learn what is required to get the win-win-win. Will, it is great to have you on the Medical Device Success podcast and videocast. Thanks so much for spending time with us today to talk about value-based care. Well, Ted, I'll tell you, it's a real pleasure, and um, I couldn't be more excited to be here. Thanks for having me. No, you're, you're welcome, and um, we're going to learn a lot today because, as listeners know, I've sort of hit value-based care from a number of different directions, and this is really unique. Uh, the direction that you come from, your your total career, and what Hopco is doing. So first, just tell us about your position at Hopco, what you do. Sure. So uh, I'm the president and chief transformation officer uh, at Hopco. And uh, it's kind of interesting because a lot of folks ask me, 
you know, what is a chief transformation officer? <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's great because it's interesting. Um, in healthcare today, everybody talks about healthcare transformation. Uh, everybody talks about value-based care, but very few people know exactly what that means operationally to them in their everyday lives. So my job at Hopco is to work with our leadership team uh, and our partners to ensure that we are, in fact, transforming the delivery of healthcare, uh, really focused on musculoskeletal healthcare in their communities. So we talk about market transformations, how we take markets and kind of layer on a value-based care side to what is already usually a fairly successful fee-for-service market. So that's my job at Hopco. Okay, very good. And just a little bit, just a, a one or two sentences about Hopco, because we're going to go into sure. a lot more detail about Hopco later. Sure. So Hopco stands for Healthcare Outcomes Performance Company, and we are a value-based uh, musculoskeletal management company that today is in 33 states. Uh, and has partnerships all around the country. All right, excellent. And, and we'll get to that, like I said, a lot more in just a, a few minutes. But first, if we could start out with a story, you know, just about, and it can go back to your clinical work or can be related to Hopco work, but um, something that led to your efforts and or influenced your efforts related to value-based care. Sure. You know, it's interesting. It's... Um, you know, I come from a from a, a very very strong uh, health system background. Yeah, I spent 25 years at the Cleveland Clinic. Still, actually, do surgery at the Cleveland Clinic, and have always been blown away by the organization, by you know um, the the quality of clinical care. And my view has always been, well, if everybody was was as good as the Cleveland Clinic at at providing great quality care, we wouldn't have a healthcare. Um, uh, challenge in this country. But the reality of it is, there are only so many Intermountain Healths, Cleveland Clinics, Ma uh, 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 Mayo Clinics, Hopkins, right? They're not, they're not everywhere. So how do you instead focus on creating a um, kind of a virtual institute type model to improve the level of care? And when it really became obvious to me that it was time for me to move on to something else was I was actually you know, I won't tell you where or who I heard it from, but I was in a meeting and 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 I, I heard um, a, a high level executive at a very well known healthcare organization make the comment, you know, I'm not really sure about this value based care stuff. You know, we still make a lot of money on readmissions. Do we really want to limit readmissions? And I was thinking, my gosh, I mean, how could somebody actually? say those words out loud and even think them to themselves, right? I mean, it's completely counterintuitive to the direction that we need to go to in, a, in, a, uh, in, in healthcare here in the United States, in this country. And it was at that point that I kind of made a decision that I wanted to be more impactful in terms of driving value-based care. And, and candidly, as a, as a hospital executive, it's, it's hard to wrap your mind around that, right? I mean, it's Christensen's whole idea around the, the inventor's dilemma, right? When you're so good at doing what you do, it's hard to transform yourself. It's, it's hard to, to, to push yourself to change directions. And large healthcare systems today that are in fact very successful at traditional value-based care, I think are finding themselves highly challenged in thinking about how do we change the paradigm and really truly adopt value-based care uh, solutions. So 
I believe that we're going to see more and more of those solutions coming out of more nimble companies um, that aren't necessarily weighed down by the you know, massive bricks and mortar that, that are associated with large healthcare systems and instead can work in the more virtual space. Um, and, and that's what really got me excited about Hopco, Healthcare Outcomes Performance Company, and why I decided to make the move. Okay. Okay. That's great. So just let's go back to your career and um, you know, what motivated you to become a doctor in the first place in general and an orthopedic physician specifically? So, you know, I grew up in a, in a, um, uh, a medical family. My father is a retired anesthesiologist. And I remember vividly as a kid, as early as maybe the fifth grade or sixth grade, he would take me in the operating room and let me oh, watch yeah. surgery. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was before all the rules, uh, today, if anybody from, uh, OSHA's listening to this, just kidding. But, but, but I was actually um, in there watching. It was amazing. And I was astounded. I mean, I would, so as soon as I turned 16 and could get a job, I got a job as a nursing assistant uh, and eventually became an orderly um, and, uh, and loved it. Um, growing up, I played lots of sports I, you know, in, in school and I, I broke an ankle. I both broke both wrists. Um, had a meniscal tear. So I was always in an orthopedic surgeon's office, you know, I guess injury prone. <laughs> so um, I, I, uh, I just really was impressed with their demeanor. And I remember uh, after I was finishing medical school and looking at, at specialties, I was kind of torn between a couple of things. And, um, and every orthopedic surgeon that I talked to, when, uh, when I asked them, look, would you do it all again? Across the board said, I would absolutely do it again. This is the greatest job ever. I love my job. Um, so that's why I chose to be an orthopedic surgeon. Some of the other specialties weren't quite as optimistic. Um, so uh, that's, that's how I ended up where I am and never you know, regretted it for a minute. But then, okay, so you're an orthopedic surgeon. Yeah. You're working hard at that. You don't regret it. You love it. You're taking great care of your patients. What started to move you from clinical work into administrative leadership, whether yeah. it was like department leadership and or even beyond, because you have some much greater leadership roles as time went on? Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. I've, I've actually remained clinically active until uh -huh. this day. In fact, I'm, I'm operating uh, in two days at the Cleveland Clinic here in Florida. So I've maintained okay. my clinical practice. Um, and that's been important to me to, to do that. But I have clearly expanded my administrative work pretty dramatically um, over the last several years. And it comes down to, to um, three people that actually really drove that move for me. Uh, the first was Joe Iannotti, who was the chairman of orthopedics at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, ended up then became the chairman of the Orthopedic and Rheumatologic Institute at the Cleveland Clinic, and then subsequently the chief of staff of Cleveland Clinic, Florida, where he oversees probably 1,200, 1,500 doctors uh, every day. Um, and he actually recognized that I had a mind that was a little bit operationally focused um, and uh, asked me to take on a couple challenges that we had around length of stay and total joint replacements at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, and, and I did, and I really enjoyed that process. You know, one of the beauties of a place like the Cleveland Clinic is it's very resource rich. So it can make a guy like me that had really no experience in terms of healthcare administration look like a superstar because I was surrounded by continuous improvement people and finance uh, experts and operational experts. And I got to kind of take the credit for all the great work that, that these teams did. 
But Joe recognized that and, and was very supportive of that and actually um, asked me to serve as the vice chairman of the department at a very young age. I'd only been in practice about five years and, uh, you know, to get to become vice chairman at the Cleveland Clinic. I mean, that was a big deal um, up in Cleveland, and I, I really loved it. The second person was Joe Hahn. Joe Hahn um, was the chief of staff of the Cleveland Clinic, uh, which means kind of the top doc, you know, just under the CEO. And Joe Hahn um, was an incredible guy. I mean, truly is an incredible guy. I should say he's retired now, but, you know, world famous neurosurgeon, had been chairman of the Department of Neurosurgery in Cleveland, um, ended up running Cleveland Clinic Innovations. Um, and Joe Hahn, early on in my career, um, asked me if I would be interested in participating in some leadership courses at the Cleveland Clinic. And, and one of the Again, one of the really special things about an organization like the Cleveland Clinic is that they actually invest in their future leaders. So I said, absolutely. So once a month for a Friday, I'd have the opportunity to learn about healthcare strategy, healthcare finance, healthcare um, operations, and, and really learned a lot about that stuff and, and found it really very fascinating. Um, and again, I, I attribute that to Joe Hahn for kind of picking me out. And, and, and he picked me out because I built this really busy practice. And Joe Iannotti had told him that I was a talented guy and, and he helped. So I'm very grateful for that. And then the third person is a guy named Mark Harrison, who's a name that you probably know well. Mark Harrison is today the CEO of Intermountain Health. Mark Harrison was the chief medical operating officer at the Cleveland Clinic. And, and he asked me to serve as the chairman of surgical operations, which ran you know, our hundreds of operating rooms across the globe, um, supply chain, nursing, uh, SPD, you know, everything that went into this vertical of surgery, um, I got to run. And again, you know, surrounded by brilliant people, I got to look really good at what I did, thanks to this incredible wisdom that I had surrounding me and all this knowledge that surrounded me. So um, that's eventually what, what, what drew me more and more into, um, into uh, administration. And then one day out of the blue, Johan chief of staff called me. I was literally backstage in New York City about to get on the podium and give a lecture, I think, on revision total hip and knee replacement. My phone rings. I saw his number. That oh, I got to answer this. I was literally getting on stage in like three minutes. Uh, and he said, well, um, Toby Cosgrove, who was the CEO of the Cleveland Clinic at the time, he and I would like to ask you to go down to Florida and serve as the, as the uh, CEO of Cleveland Clinic Florida. And I said, oh, Dr. Hahn, I'm literally about to get on stage and give a presentation. Can I call you back? <laughs> so gave my presentation, called my wife. I said, what do you think? I was like, whatever you think, I'll, you know, we're totally supportive of whatever you want to do. So we took the plunge and, and it was it was an awesome decision. Just had a great time. Now, it's uh, an amazing, really an amazing story of uh, uh, personal change and growth at the same time while you're still being a clinician. At the uh, Cleveland Clinic, the, especially in Florida, where you're the president and CEO of the Cleveland Clinic, how big was the Cleveland Clinic in Florida? So when I first got to Florida, we were a single 155-bed hospital in Weston um, that uh, employed about 300 doctors, uh, maybe, I don't know, uh, 3,000 caregivers across the system, 300 of them were docs. Um, when I uh, um, 
kind of retired as the from the position CEO and president and moved on to Hopco. That was seven years later. We were a, a 1,200 bed system, about $2 billion and 12,000 uh, caregivers throughout Florida, uh, spread out across five hospitals and 40 sites. So we grew pretty dramatically during that you know six or seven year period um, when I was there. You went through quite a bit of growth then uh, during your time in, in Florida. We did. And, uh, and it was a lot of fun. You know, Toby Cosgrove was, was my boss. He was the CEO. He and Brian Donnelly was the chief of staff at the time. Brian is now CEO of Cleveland Clinic London. So I, I really learned a tremendous amount from these guys. And, and Toby had given me uh, a, lot of, a lot of room to grow Cleveland Clinic in Florida. And he was, to his credit, very committed to growing in Florida and being successful in Florida. You know, there was a lot of discussion earlier about, you know, um, you know, should we even be in Florida? What's the Cleveland Clinic doing down here? We've got Cleveland in our name. Why aren't we just in Northeast Ohio? But Toby had a, a, an image of a globalized Cleveland Clinic and in fact grew into Abu Dhabi, now in London. Uh, we were in Las Vegas, we're in Las Vegas, down in Florida. So he had a real vision for growth. And uh, although he made a lot of the big decisions for the Cleveland Clinic. He also decentralized some of the power and allowed me as uh, the leader in Florida to build a lot of the relationships and, and to um, advocate for Florida. Uh, so we grew and we grew quickly. And in fact, uh, ended up being the top ranked healthcare system in South Florida now for I think four years in a row. I mean, it's, it's an incredible organization down here. And what uh, cities in Florida is the Cleveland Clinic located? I, I know a couple of them, but, uh, but I don't know all of them. Sure. So, so think about going from as far south as Fort Lauderdale all the way north to Vero Beach. So we are, we've got 40 sites that kind of fill in that patchwork of area. So Broward County, which is Fort Lauderdale, um, into Palm Beach County, which is you know uh, Boca Raton and, and Palm Beach and West Palm Beach. Uh, into Martin County, which includes Stewart, uh, Port St. Lucie, and then Indian River County, which is Vero Beach. So that okay. whole area has a large clinical footprint and now a very large research footprint as well. Okay, awesome. Great. And then um, when you were at the Cleveland Clinic, was value-based care always something in the equation or did you see it as an opportunity and 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 a, a location that was friendly to the concept. How did, how did that value-based care grow in your experience at the Cleveland Clinic? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the Cleveland Clinic certainly invested in things that were important to the community, right? Remote care, um, uh, telehealth, um, uh, a large primary care footprint in that market that, that's important, obviously, for taking care of populations. But, you know, organizations like the Cleveland Clinic uh, are also really fall into that inventor's dilemma quandary because they're extraordinarily successful and for good reason, because of how good we are at clinical care, extraordinarily successful in the value, in, I'm sorry, in the fee-based structure of healthcare that predominates here in the United States today. So it's hard to kind of make that leap, but where the Cleveland Clinic did you know, focus some efforts was around things like a, uh, 
the Cleveland Clinic ACO, which in its first year, you know, had some very significant savings. Um, the challenge was in further years, it didn't really have any savings because so much of the expense was taken out. So, you know, one of the challenges that organizations like the Cleveland Clinic have, and I wouldn't just say the Cleveland Clinic, I mean, really across the country, is we need we need systems that incentivize value-based care that are more impressive than what are today at our fingertips, right? Whether it's clinically integrated networks or accountable care organizations, right? They're, they're just not enough bundled care, right? It's, it doesn't provide enough savings for long enough to make it really an incentive for most providers. So many providers tried it and then left, and that's a problem, right? So you need something that draws a provider in and then keeps them engaged because there's so much to be gained by that provider in the care of their patients and their community. So, you know, I, I would say that, you know, organizations all have an interest and, and have a, a desire to do something. I'm not sure that the tools that are at our fingertips today, the traditional tools, are quite enough. That's where an organization like Hopco comes in. Okay. I was going to say, it's a great segue into your move to Hopco. So what made, what motivated you to move into um, an organization like Hopco? Sure. So a couple of things, you know, I think first when I, when I, um, when we were dealing with COVID here in Florida, I got a real sense working closely with um, with the governor and the task forces that he put up here and and our uh, our Department of Health here in Florida on on how we could provide higher quality care to the community, whether it was in testing and and eventually vaccines and and treatment for patients. It, it became more and more evident to me that the healthcare system was just broken in terms of its ability to react to um, obviously what became you know, God willing, a once in a century pandemic. Um, but but we were just not really prepared. Although I would say it was incredible to see organizations come together and, and actually even a state government that participated in a very symbiotic way with healthcare systems to, to help drive better care and to keep our community safe. You know, from a value-based care perspective, we just weren't prepared for it. And if you remember, the solution at the federal level and at the state level was just make everything free. Testing is free. Um, go home if you think you're sick, we'll pay your salary. You know, it was, it was, a, it was a very appropriate over-the-top reaction to ensure that people could would be as safe as possible as we were dealing with an unknown. The reality of it is we should have been more prepared to deal with this um, in a, in a way that would that would keep our communities as safe as possible because it was the role of the healthcare system to care for the community, right? And that's where I started seeing more and more of that disconnect was if the healthcare system really just focused completely on the care of the community during this time, <clears throat> healthcare systems wouldn't survive, right? Because you don't survive taking care of um, things like COVID. You survive on doing hip replacements and knee replacements and elective procedures. And that's just the way the healthcare system works. Some areas you make money, some areas you lose money, but if you want to provide high quality care and serve your community, you've got to do it all. Right. And that, so that kind of started to, to, to become more and more evident to me. That was number one. Number two, and this wasn't new, was that I knew that for, you know, 20 years, 
you know, as a as a 25 years as a as a practicing surgeon, the healthcare system was very much driven on fee for service medicine, and that value based care was in many cases, you know, kind of a sexy word that we all love to throw around, but nobody was really that excited about getting into. Um, so those things together combined to make me want to play a more significant role in kind of that that jumping that chasm between fee-for-service and value-based care. And, and again, my sense is that there are ways to do that without alienating organizations that have done well in fee-for-service medicine. Okay. Okay. That's a great answer. Yeah, it is a, it is a problem. And, um, you know, I've been in the healthcare business my entire career, and I really, I really noticed it was broken when I um, – went over to Europe. I, I worked in Europe and I had my gallbladder taken out in France and saw what they did compared it to what we did here. I knew we were in, we, we are, have a broken system, but let's talk about Hopco. So when I first contacted you first became aware of you during my research and looked at Hopco, I totally misunderstood what the company was about. I thought it was like a consultancy, but you're actually, more of a service organization for um, providers, especially in the musculoskeletal place. Tell us about, tell us about Hopco a little bit more detail about what Hopco is. Yeah, sure. So, so Hopco does do some consulting, but, but we, we prefer to work with organizations as partners. So, you know, we, we have um, three kind of artificial verticals to what we do. The, the first vertical, and you'll see how they all tie in together. The first vertical is management of musculoskeletal practices. We have a large MSOs. We have actually MSOs all around the country where we manage musculoskeletal practices. And today, I think we're the largest uh, manager of musculoskeletal care in the country. We have about 650 musculoskeletal providers that are part of one of our MSOs somewhere in the country. So, you know, we manage the practices. We work with the docs there. We partner with them. Um, we own with the docs, you know, ASCs. Um, we uh, 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 provide, you know, much of their uh, back office requirements, but we also work with them to grow what they do and to help provide them with a platform to have higher quality, lower cost care. So that's kind of the first vertical. The second vertical is we work with um, healthcare systems, where we'll work with a healthcare system soup to nuts in managing their musculoskeletal service line. So whether it's marketing, branding, supply chain, uh, operations, uh, continuous improvement, all of these areas will work with a provider in a community, uh, a healthcare provider in a community to make them the highest quality, lowest cost provider of musculoskeletal care in that community. And by doing that, we actually end up seeing a lot of care end up steered to that healthcare system because of the reputation that they very quickly uh, end up gaining in terms of quality and, and cost. In fact, on average, the healthcare systems that we work with end up seeing an increase in market share of about 31% within the first two years and doubling their contribution margin uh, over the course of five years. So very, very successful from that perspective. And then the third arm is a value-based care arm where we actually work with insurers and we can work with insurers in many different ways. I'll give you an example. We work with CMS as one of the largest convener 
of musculoskeletal bundles in the country. Then we work with private payers, whether it's a United Healthcare or, or a Blue Cross and Blue Shield, where we might have a, a full risk subcapitated model where we're actually taking risk on their musculoskeletal spend on all 26,000 ICD-10 codes, or maybe we're doing a procedure-based bundle or a condition-based bundle um, with them. So we're, we're an incredibly flexible organization, which as you know, is not very common in healthcare, but recognizing what a market might need, we can put a solution together. And then as you, you put these pieces together, so you've got clinicians that are aligned through an MSO. Outside of that, we actually have probably another couple thousand providers that work with us through clinically integrated networks that we create. So when you've got the providers all aligned around high quality, lower cost care, you have healthcare systems and, and ASCs that are aligned around higher quality and lower cost care. Now you have a package that you can go to a payer to and say, look, we'll use your network. We'll give you a turnkey solution that allows you to save money and you can pass that savings on to your patients as a, as a, as a payer, either through an expansion of benefits or reduction in cost, whatever you want, because the more they grow, the better it is for us. So it, it really is kind of an alignment mechanism to drive true market transformation, to provide the highest quality, lowest cost musculoskeletal care in a market. Um, and that's what we get really excited about. And again, it, it's, been, it's been wonderful to work with some of the, the you know, incredible partners around, around the country. Ascension, for example, is a partner of ours, uh, CHS, is a partner of ours. University of North Carolina Healthcare System is a partner of ours. Um, in terms of practices, Southeast Orthopedic Specialist is a partner. Center for Bone and Joint Surgery, Premier Orthopedics, one of the largest musculoskeletal practices in the country. The Core Institute, one of the largest musculoskeletal practices in the country. All of these aren't um, aren't uh, what's the word I want to use? Um, they're not customers. They're partners. And that I think is what's so exciting. United Healthcare, Florida Blue, right? That to me is really exciting when when you have partners that have that kind of name recognition. Sure. And it just makes sense if you're helping somebody increase their volume and then you're lowering their cost, then it's the perfect move into value-based care where they're because they've got all these savings. Yeah. And I think, you know, to be to be clear, you know, it's it's not it's rarely our goal to quote increase volume to a healthcare system, right? It really is to create the right model for the highest value care. And that tends to drive volume to that, right. but that's not, you know, really our focus. It's, it's interesting. I had a, I have a friend of mine um, who is in the car business. I have actually several friends in the car business. Uh, some that I'm really, really close to, but but this one gentleman was a gentleman that um, um, he gave he he did a uh, a nice endowed chair to the Cleveland Clinic uh, and and gave a, a nice gift for that. And we were having dinner after he gave the endowed chair, and he was asking me about value based care. Very um, intelligent guy, and he was asking me, you know why is it that we haven't moved more to value-based care here in this country? And I said, let me, let, me, let me explain it to you in automotive terms. I said, you guys sell cars today. Uh, I said, if you look at your overall business, how much money do you make on service? And he said, well, we make a lot of money on service. I said, exactly. 
So if you sell a higher quality car for the same price, but then you don't get to provide as much service to that car, what does that do to your bottom line? You say, well, that would be horrible for my bottom line. I said, well, that's exactly right. So it, it's we're, we're dealing with a system that is convoluted in that the healthier we keep patients, the less money the healthcare system makes. So we need to change that so that through what we do through clinically integrated networks and higher quality practices and higher quality healthcare systems, that those groups actually make more money through the shared savings that come from the practice from the from the payer side. And then the payer saves money and that can be redistributed back to their patients or through you know some kind of enhanced benefits. So you really need a win-win-win. Um, but there are losers, right? In this case, the loser are the healthcare systems that aren't providing the highest quality care or the practices that are providing higher cost care, right? Somebody has to lose in that model. But our goal is if you're partnered with us, you're going to win in that model. So it's, it's again, it's kind of the same thing here. If you get a really high quality car that doesn't break down, eventually more people should be buying cars from you. And you ought to be able to make money because you're selling a higher quality car. You shouldn't be making your money because the car keeps breaking down and you have to keep fixing it. Right, exactly. Um, so one of the things you talked about and one of the things that obviously you're involved in if you're helping to manage so many of these practices is the supply chain. So here we're going to start um, moving into, in, into med tech. Then I want to circle back to value-based care. But on the med tech side, as you were saying, one thing that influenced you early, you know, years ago was hearing a, a med tech executive essentially say that um, they needed readmissions to keep their volume up, to be profitable. It was a valuable thing for them, although it's really not good for the patient. So how do you deal with med tech companies so that they're part of the win-win too? Yeah, so a couple of, so first of all, it wasn't a med tech executive, that was a hospital executive that, that okay. made that comment, yeah, which I think is important to differentiate. Yeah, you um, might find a med tech executive that thinks the same way. <laughs> well, look, I mean, look, in, in the world of, of total joint replacement, clearly, you know, you make money whether you sell a primary hip and knee replacement or a revision hip and knee replacement. So yeah, there's right. money to be made on both sides. You know, I've been um, very fortunate in that I've, I've had the opportunity and I'll openly, you know, just disclose my conflict with with Stryker Orthopedics, where I do a lot of design work and, and have had the opportunity to work with some of their folks. I, I will tell you, I've been blown away when I when I've worked with executives at uh, at Stryker specifically who have said all the right things. Right. They, they clearly want to be a true healthcare partner. And, and I think part of the challenge has been, very candidly, Ted, is there has been a, a distrust from healthcare systems towards med tech for many years. Because for many, many years, you know, in the, in, in the med tech world, you would just every year charge 10% more than you charged the year before, even if there was no real improvement to the product. Right. It was there was a sense this is all about volume and just buy more of our product. And oh my God, it's the end of the quarter. If you buy these three pieces of capital, we'll knock 20% off. I mean, it's kind of a sales job to some degree. But I but I do think that there are organizations out there that have taken a different stance on this and really want to partner. And I think it requires a bit of a leap of faith in many cases 
on the hospital side to trust organizations that really do want to come and partner with you, want to kind of hear about what your pain points are and, and want to help solve those pain points. And in my view, you know, Stryker has clearly taken that role and it comes from the top, the CEO, you know, Kevin Lobo, very, very impressive guy. And he has said, we are going to be, we are the most ethical um, healthcare uh, um, uh, company in the world. And that's how we're going to act. And, and that's exactly what they want to do. So I think it's a two-way street, right? When you say what do the, what needs to happen in med tech is for leaders to say, it's not just all about the bottom line. It's about what is best for patients, what is best for our communities, what is best for society. And it's also about healthcare systems saying, okay, we're going to eliminate this firewall that we've created between us as the healthcare system and them as the seller of healthcare products. And instead, we're going to work together to try to figure out how can we provide a better product for our patients to improve the overall quality of care. And that is a challenge. It's not a chip shot. It will take some effort um, and it will take time to build up that trust. But I think that both sides of that um, of that coin are actually interested in, in, in getting together and making that change. It's just going to take some time. So you use Stryker as an example of a company that has the right culture, the right attitude toward working hand in hand with uh, the providers, which essentially through you, do you yeah. see companies that don't get it? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. And, and what, what it, do you see with them? Well, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's the old fashioned way of making sales. Hey, take, take, you know, take the doc out to dinner and, you know, and, you know, get buddy, buddy with them and take them out, you know, for a night. You know, th those things are, yeah, it's certainly gotten less, you know, only because I think in many cases, the federal government stepped in and said, yes, it's such a yeah, it wasn't like, you know, <laughs> independent. Um, uh, but, but, but I think that's kind of gotten better. But listen, it, it still goes on. I mean, I think we, many of us see it, many of us recognize that it's happening. Um, so yeah, I mean, that that is an issue, right? When, when, when you take a product and you add a little widget to it that doesn't really make a difference, but you can charge another $300 or $400 and cost you $10 to make it. Listen, I, I get it, right? Many of these companies, they're either startup companies that are looking to be successful and, and, uh, and continue to grow, or they're publicly traded companies where their primary um, uh, legal obligation is to in increase value to their shareholders. So I get it, right? There's an intrinsic conflict in there, you know, you have to try to maximize your profits so that your shareholders are, are being rewarded for taking risk on you. But at the same time, you're in healthcare, so you're held to a higher standard, right? We're not selling tennis shoes, right? We're, we're, we're selling health. Um, so we should be held to a higher standard. I think that's a reasonable thing to be held to. Um, and I do think some organizations get it. And I also think that some organizations just don't. So one of the things that you were saying is the the med tech company to win in this in this environment that is going to become um, even more dominant. You know the whole concept of value based care or working as a team. They need to be working with the doctors in the and in the providers in the hospitals in the clinics and saying we think this is a pain point. Do you agree? You know, is this something that can help you? be in there proactively as opposed to reactively. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I think that's right. I mean, I think today to a large degree, again, there's a firewall, right? It's a guess what I'm thinking game, right? If you're in many cases, if you're on the med tech side, you're guessing what is the pain point at the hospital? Maybe, maybe you have some consultants or some key opinion leaders that are helping to give you that information. But the reality of it is most of them are probably in the orthopedic world, they're orthopedic surgeons. You know, they may or may not know exactly what the hospital administration is thinking. Maybe some do, maybe some don't. I don't know. But but um, it is, you know, a bit of a challenge. I think, you know, one, one thing that will shock many people is only 50% of the hospitals in the United States make money on the delivery of healthcare. The other 50% are in the red delivering healthcare. Now, if they're a nonprofit, they make up for that through philanthropy or through grants. If they're a for-profit, maybe they're running in the red for a little bit, you know, their stock price is going down. Um, but that's a real challenge. And the hospitals that are making money are not making, you know, 20% margins. They might be making 3%, 4%, 5%, even a margin. So it's not like hospitals are flush with money. You know, doctors think that hospitals are flush with cash. Most hospitals are not flush with cash, right? That, that's the reality. Um, they're not kind of this never ending supply of money. Uh, so, so I think it is important for each group to understand what are the challenges that, that my colleagues you know, across the way are having and how can we help solve those challenges for them so that ultimately it's a win-win and so that our patients can benefit. One thing that I, I was in surgery a lot you know, earlier in my career, uh, typically urology, neurosurgery, and um, plastic surgery. And surgeons are really good at working around an issue and they almost don't even know it. They're just confronted with a little bit of a problem. They realize they have to work around it and they work around it and they get used to it because part of their workflow. But if you had an engineer in the room that really understood what the surgeon was doing and could say, would you like me to shave like, you know, five minutes off the surgery or three minutes off the surgery and make your life a little bit easier? Because I see you doing that, but I think I can solve that for you. Um, that would be a real benefit. I don't know that enough companies have like solution oriented people like engineers in the clinics. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a fair question. And, you know, it's it's interesting because we talked a little bit about um, the relationship between uh, med tech and, and, and clinicians. Uh, and for many years, that relationship was seen as being um, really a negative thing in the eyes of patients and in the eyes of the federal government. But the reality of it is you just made the point why that relationship is so important because yeah. um, without clinicians giving feedback in the med tech world, we wouldn't see the advances that we have today. And if, and if in the med tech world, if they didn't want the relationships with clinicians, we wouldn't be seeing the advantages you know, and the, and the advances that we have today. So that's absolutely true. No different to look at hospital and healthcare operations in the same way. In fact, the most successful organizations today <clears throat> on the healthcare side, on the, on the uh, um, healthcare system side, have robust continuous improvement, process improvement, you know, Six Sigma black belts that are on their staff that are doing fast track procedures and Kaizen events and, and embedding um, these process engineers into the workflows to determine, you know, how can we reduce length of stay in a safe way? How can we improve on-time starts in an operating room or decrease turnover time or improve, improve reliability in surgical processing? You know, all of these things together, 
that in many other industries, right, like the automotive industry, the aviation industry, have improved reliability dramatically, we are just starting to apply in healthcare. You know, and, and one comment I would make to that, Ted, because I brought up aviation and everybody and their mother loves to compare healthcare and aviation, you know, in terms of reliability. And I have to tell you, I hate that comparison. And I feel that I'm uniquely qualified to say that because I, I am a pilot, so I fly airplanes and I'm a doctor and I'm a healthcare administrator. So I, I feel that I'm uniquely qualified. And I'll tell you the big difference between healthcare and aviation is one thing and that's autopilot. When you get in an airplane, the airplane essentially flies itself. There is very little that is left for the error-prone human being that is behind the yoke to actually do. Much of what is done is done by a computer. And in healthcare, we don't have that. We have human beings that are making millions of decisions a day to ensure that a patient ends up with the right outcome. And it's many human beings that all have to do the right thing for a patient to get the right outcome. And that is the big difference. And that's why healthcare and aviation, many people would love to compare them, but they are absolutely different things. <laughs> that's a really, really good point. But uh, I've done a lot of episodes on artificial intelligence. Uh, that's where artificial intelligence starts to come into medicine and where it starts to offer some solutions to workflows and to a lot of things throughout from Absolutely. throughout throughout the clinic. We're starting to get really close on time here. Um, I just thought I would ask, you know, any other advice that you have for uh, med tech leaders, um, team members? functional leaders, whether they're in manufacturing or R&D or in sales and marketing, any other suggestions you have for them to, to thrive in this environment and, you know, so that they can properly serve organizations like yours and the organizations that you serve? Sure. You know, I think the biggest thing is whether you're a private company, whether you're a startup, whether you're, uh, you know, um, kind of a, a, a late stage, private company or a publicly traded company, it, it, it's, it's easy for us, it's easy to fall into the trap of, you know, what are your key performance metrics? What are your dashboards saying? What is your business intelligence saying? You know, that, that's easy to do. The harder thing to do is to try to figure out what is important to your customer, right? If it's a healthcare system, it may be, um, it may be um, that they're having an issue with storage, right? You're selling a product that where you require a large amount of inventory to be on the shelf and they may not have the shelf space for it. It may be, um, well, you know, this is a capital expenditure and we're not in a position right now to make a capital purchase. So maybe you figure out some kind of a way to do long-term leases for them. Um, it may be that they're concerned that there are so many moving parts to a product that they can't adequately sterilize it, whatever it may be. Right. You may have your ideas on what's important to them, but it may not be what's actually important to your customer. So know your customer. And, you know, everybody loves to say, you know, my customer is my patient. The reality of it is your cust the customer is probably not the patient in your case. The customer is the doctor who's who's buying it for their clinic. The customer is the hospital that is choosing 
to put your drug on formulary or choosing to have your implant as you know one of their one or two accepted vendors. You know, so to a large degree, that's your customer. Um, and, and so understand what's important to them and and feel their pain. And my advice on the other side as well to the hospital systems and to the doctors is, is trust that there are lots of really great med tech companies that do in fact have your best interest at heart and want to partner with you and want to learn from you. So, you know, let's let's kind of break down this firewall and work together to get the very best outcomes for our patients and ultimately reduce the cost of care in the United States and improve the quality so that we really do have the best healthcare system in the world. Because today, unfortunately, I would tell you we don't. And we've got, we have a fair amount of work to do to get there. Very well said. And I think that's a great way to to end the program is is just with with that with what you your last paragraph there is just terrific. Well, thank um, you, Ted. I appreciate it. Well, thank thanks, Will. Thank you very much for being on the program today. This has been terrific, and and you know I'd like to invite you back sometime in the future, maybe a year from now. Let's, let's circle back and see where you are and um, and how Hopka is doing and where you think we, the country is in terms of uh, its care for its um, citizens. Well, Ted, I would, I'd love to come back. It's really been a pleasure, uh, and I've enjoyed getting to know you throughout this process, and I look forward to coming back anytime you invite me. Thank you. On the one hand, the threat to medtech and value-based care is lower consumption of certain products. On the other hand, the companies that learn how to partner with providers and solve their problems will grow, and new and old products and services that contribute to the win-win-win will succeed. Your challenge is to determine how you, your team, and your company will participate in a constructive way that solves real problems and gains market share. Finally, remember who your customers are. Thanks for spending time with Will and me today. Now go win your week. <laughs>